0: Well, hi folks, welcome. welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, this is one man's view of the changing world, the changing times. And the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, April the 21st, 2023. And this is episode 3,295 of the Survival Podcast. It's also the last new episode that you will hear of the show for the next two weeks. Uh, I am going on vacation starting next week. will be gone all week. we will be gone all the following week. I have 10 Awesome rewinds lined up for you. If you usually skip rewinds, don't this time. We're going far enough back in time. I guarantee, even if you heard it, you won't remember it. It'll be like the first time all over again. And I've got a tremendous, and I mean a tremendous, diverse array of topics and subjects across a broad swath of time set up for you on the rewinds. But not today. No, today you will hear. From the expert council, leading off, as always, Dr. Ron Paul and his team. Dr. Paul will talk about how Elon Musk now says the U.S. government had full access to Twitter. I don't think people get the reality. These are, you know, they high crimes and misdemeanors. These are federal felonies that have been committed. And I'm going to tell you, nothing will ever be done about it. Even if the Congress clown Republicans take over the whole clown show in 2024 have major majorities in both houses and the presidency they won't do anything about this because they're part of it you can believe otherwise but sorry next up Dan McAdams will talk about how the U.S. is now using Taiwan just as we used Ukraine and we saw how wonderful that's all worked out And, you know, we've also heard recently, if you've been paying attention, that there's this this National Guardsman who released this information. He's a traitor! Well, he's a traitor because the information says that the government's been lying about everything when it comes to Ukraine. Lying about how much our allies support our actions in Ukraine. Lying about Ukraine winning against Russia. Duh! Lying about literally everything. And now we're going to go help Taiwan. You know, they don't lie for Reagan. There's nothing more terrifying than a person that says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. I, I think uh, c- going to another country and say, we're the United States and we're here to help you, might be worse than uh, when we hear it ourselves from an individual in the government, an individual bureaucrat. And Chris Rossini will talk about how an AI-driven utopia is but a pipe dream. Then we'll move on. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about Phonio, F-O-N-I-O, Phonio. What is that? It's a grain. Should you grow it? Should you eat it? you see what Dr. Ken says. Sean Mills will talk about DC generators and something called a sand battery. Yep, you'll hear. What's a sand battery? Sean will tell you. Doc Bones will talk about disposal of old or expired medications, especially if, uh, in this case, somebody's father passed on and uh, had a lot of maintenance medications. Plus, of course, being one of the, like, you know, people get older, they tend to not throw things away. It's so like a five-gallon bucket full of pills. I'll have an add-on to this one that I think is something that should be said. Jeff Lawton will talk about what to do if you put in a well, but you end up with nothing but salt water. Amy Dingman will talk about getting kids to think and ask before they act. Turning a swamp into a productive food forest, if it's even doable, from Nick Ferguson. And I am actually going to do a quote of the day that I'm going to do commentary on from our own Dr. Ron Paul. Dr. Paul once said, real patriotism is a willingness to challenge the government when it's wrong. As somebody who's lashed out continuously across 15 years of podcasting against blind patriotism, when I saw this quote from Dr. Paul, I'm like, maybe we should talk about what patriotism is. And is there any place for patriotism for an anarchist? I think it depends. If it doesn't make sense, maybe it will when I talk about it, and we'll just dig right into it. Let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Paul's crew. In order, first Dr. Paul, then Dan McAdams, then Chris Rossini, and I'll be back.
1: Keeping up to speed with what the government's doing, and they gave uh, you know a little bit of hint what they were doing when Ed Snowden discovered they were doing a lot more. They were spying on the American people, and they had the so-called authority, which they shouldn't have had as far as I'm concerned, that they were just gonna spy on people overseas. So I think you give them an inch and they take a mile. And I think I guess libertarians are born a little bit skeptical. And the longer you become a libertarian, the more skeptical you get. Mm-hmm. So but I think it's a healthy distrust because government has been so bad and there's been a trend here in these last several years. Away from the Constitution and away from privacy, and then with the technology, I always hope the technology would help us protect ourselves, and we can to a degree. But there's always something that uh, <clears throat> that that's going to allow the government to go, or at least they will push it. I was uh, raised at a time when business people steered away from getting too much involved in politics because there was no benefit to it. There, are their job was to produce a product and make a profit, take care of their shareholders if they had shareholders. But now it, it's uh, quite different than that. Usually, they're too close. You know, our position certainly is that uh, government should be very small. They shouldn't be in the business of uh, dealing and becoming partners with, with with government. And governments do have some responsibility. One is to stay out of wars. And the other one would be maybe sound money. You know, becoming the counterfeiters of the world. So and that would simplify things that wouldn't be get rid of some of those regulations that Chris was just talking about. And we could go back and uh, and work in an imperfect society. But the responsibility would be on the individual. If we mess up, I always told my crowd, crowds would be that if you mess up. Uh, well, if you do something good, you benefit from it and you're not going to be taxed and regulated to death. But if you mess up, you're responsible for yourself. You can't go to the government and say, I want a bailout." And uh, even on the college campuses, even the liberal campuses seem to receive that message.
2: The whole basis of U.S. foreign policy is having an enemy. Uh, it's not protecting the United States. It's not making us safer. It's not even making the world safer. The U.S. foreign policy is based on having enemies. And as we see the war in Ukraine winding down, a war that many experts knew could not be won, uh, in, w- in which many people said it was an, a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. I think you mentioned that early on yourself in a column. So as that war winds down, and it will because it can't be won, you're seeing Washington ramp up a conflict with, with, uh, with China using Taiwan the exact same way, Use Ukraine, even if Taiwan didn't drive up to the drive up window at the Pentagon and order these missiles, uh, even in the best, quote unquote, best case scenario, it is the U.S. taxpayer who subsidized the, the, uh, the research and development, the building, the creation of the Harpoon missile. I mean, we th- all of the costs are socialized. <laughs> we pay all the costs and all of the profits are privatized by Boeing and Raytheon and all of the other uh, companies. That's why it's a massive scam. So, certainly the U.S. taxpayer in one way or the other is all in for this. And again, you know, the question is, how does, how is this serving the U.S.? I mean, not even how is it serving the U.S. national interest, but what is the U.S. national interest? What is our strategy? What should be our goal in a world that's changing? Nobody is even, I mean, there are a lot of people that were, had dumb answers to big questions, and we could talk about uh, Brzezinski and others. Uh, but why isn't anyone even asking? Why can't the people uh, in the State Department and Pentagon even craft a kind of, you know, long-term big strategy instead of Russia bad, China bad, build missiles, you know, that's basically it. Uh, I mean, these, it's, it's on autopilot, Dr. Paul, there's just no thinking going on, and it doesn't serve the American interest at all.
3: And of course, as could be expected, central planners, people who lust after power, they see AI as a tool for a man-made utopia. Um, It's not, because central planning can't work, even with AI. Uh, As you said, Dr. Paul, humans, we are emotional, we learn, and there's no way to anticipate how a person learns. You know, there's a lot of people that would never get another government-endorsed shot again. Uh, We adapt. Uh, We're always valuing in the present. And artificial intelligence can have past data, but it can't possibly anticipate all the unknown variables that exist in our universe no matter how much data it has it will always be dealing in probabilities but we already always deal in probabilities you know business owners they went to work today uh, under the impression that there's a high probability that people will come in but they don't know for sure a, tona- a tornado could rip through and there's nobody comes in so everything is a probability whether you're trading in the marketplace in the stock market You know, we're always anticipating the future without knowing it. So AI, it's now it could be better at calculating probabilities, but it will always be working with probabilities and never be able to uh, uh, precisely predict the future.
0: Okay, good stuff there from the crew as always. Um, I do kind of want to point out one more time that what went on between the United States government and Twitter, and you know what happened with Facebook too, we just don't have the proof. And, and probably Google, and probably Amazon, and probably who knows who else. These This is federal felony level shit, guys. But no one's going to do anything. Nothing's going to happen. And, and and the Republicans may even run on, we're going to find out how far this goes. No, you're not. They're not going to do anything. It's all virtue signaling BS. Um... Yes, of course, the U.S. is going to use Taiwan now to create a new enemy. And what I want to tell you about that is, you know, you might have thought war winding down in Ukraine. No, no. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And Russia is going to keep the Donbass region. Exactly what I said was going to happen when this all started is what's going to happen. I said the best case scenario in this now is that Russia takes the Donbass region. And every single person that dies in between now and that dies for nothing guys for nothing because that's the inevitable conclusion. So how do I know this? Because the talking heads are already talking about figuring out a way to end this where Putin can 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 save face some. Like what they're saying is to 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 bring this conflict to an end. And this is being said by talking heads on mainstream radio, it's being said by talking heads on the Fox News, it's being said by talking heads over at CNN. It's being said, like, th- there has to be some way for Putin to save face in this. Well, there's only one way. What, 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 th- there's two things that Russia has a hard line on here at this point. One is no NATO for Ukraine, the other is they're keeping Donbass. And this is not about who's right. I'm just telling you how Russia sees this. Russia sees this as there was a civil war for eight years on our border and we're done. That's how Russia sees this. Whether you think that's right or wrong, that's how Russia sees this. And they're not going to give that territory back. And they do control that territory. And Ukraine is not on the verge of victory. But the TV will tell you otherwise. But don't be, when it all happens... And it goes gradually, then suddenly, and there's peace, and oh my god, and and they'll talk bravado about taking it back someday, just like they do with Crimea, it's not going to happen. And I'll tell you what, Ukraine better make this deal soon, and here's why. Because they do not have the military might to stand against Russia, the United States is not equipped right now to enter this conflict and start a nuclear war, period, end of story, 100%, we are in deep shit, we have so depleted, our, our, our munitions, to reserve. it's crazy. And we are in no position to do that. And Russia knows that, and we know that. And what is about to happen, because Putin is not a good guy. He's not a nice guy. And what Putin would love to do is connect Donbass, by land all the way to Crimea, and there is territory in between the two regions right now that's contested, but Ukraine still basically controls If they don't start moving toward negotiations, my guess, because it's tactically sound as a decision, good or bad, doesn't have anything to do with it, tactically sound as a decision, that Russia would say, okay, you don't want to give us the territory we say we want, we'll take more. And that would be the most strategically valid uh, attack that they could make. Last, central planned economies driven by AI, yeah. Uh, I think more what you're going to see about AI is watch for the first within a couple of years the first AI false flag. Something got hacked, something got broken, something got destroyed, AI did it. Watch. Watch it happen. And what they're priming the pump with right now, they're trying to convince you that this AI stuff is so smart. It's smarter than every living human right? Anybody's played with chat chat GPT knows that's bull. That it gets very simple things wrong all the time, and it's incredibly biased from the left, as far as its viewpoints on things. It's not artificial intelligence. It's the illusion of artificial intelligence. It doesn't mean there won't ever be real artificial intelligence, but ChatGPT is not artificial intelligence. It's phony. It's fake. It's a computer that responds to cues in a format that it makes it appear to have intelligence. And its purpose is to sell you on how great AI really is. And we have to be afraid of it, but we also need it. Yeah. Okay. With that, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Ken Berry now on something called Forneo.
4: Hello, TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from John about Phonio. So Phonio is an interesting thing that you can plant around on your homestead it's an ancient african grain uh i think they've been cultivating it there for hundreds if not thousands of years and so the question is should i plant this on my homestead for nutrition and i'm not opposed to planting phonio on your farmstead i've I've got many many things planted on our homestead here uh, mainly due to jack Spearco and things he's talked about in past podcasts including purslane and comfrey and a hundred other things and i think it's good to have lots of biodiversity on your homestead now but the question is should you eat phonio so this is it's a seed from a grass now there's two things that you should ask yourself before you eat any plant food how many carbohydrates does it have and is it inflammatory how inflammatory is it so first of all phonio is very, very rich in carbohydrates. Uh, a quarter cup of phonio seeds has 39 grams of carbohydrates. So those carbohydrates are gonna break down immediately into sugar, causing a blood sugar spike and an insulin spike and all of the things that go along with that, mostly negative. Now, in, so in an optimization situation, you should not eat phonio. It's also, it is a seed from a plant. And no plant on the earth wants you to to destroy its seeds. So plants invariably, Phonio included, put toxins in their seeds, which can cause some degree of inflammation in your body. And they very often will also decrease the amount of vitamins and minerals that you can absorb by eating that seed. Now, animals that eat this seed and it just passes through and they poop it out, Phonio doesn't mind that. But if you crunch the seed, the covering you're going to expose yourself or whatever eats the phonio seeds to those inflammatory things. So with that being said, absolutely, plant some phonio. In a starvation situation, you should eat all the phonio because you won't starve to death. It will sustain you and keep you from dying. But in my opinion, it's not in any way a good optimization food because it's full of carbs and it is, uh, by definition, inflammatory. Does that make sense? Now, should you grow it for your chickens? Absolutely. Their gut's completely different from yours. They're, they're made to eat seeds. Could you feed it to your quail or your turkey? Absolutely. And then you could eat those things. So, uh, phonio is, is great for animals and livestock. It's not great for human beings to eat, but it is great to eat if you're trying to prevent literal starvation. Hope this answer helps. This is Dr. Berry. Talk to you next time. I personally just think from my knowledge of this grain
0: that if you want to grow grains for emergencies and for your livestock, there are better choices. Not because of anything nutritional, but because of yield and effort and work in order to convert this product into something usable. That's why I did a show not too long ago on sorghum. And I think if you want to grow something you can feed to birds sorghum is a better choice of grains to grow in most climates. You have to think about this uh this phonia stuff is you've probably never heard of it before and if you have before today it was probably very recent. There is this marketing obsession now with ancient grains, ancient grains. Because they know if they put ancient grain on something you'll buy it. And I don't mean you personally, but the American people will buy it, and the yuppies will buy it, and the hipsters will buy it, and Gen Z will eat it, and everybody will think they're cool because it's an ancient grain. Well, it's not a very popular grain because the yield sucks. So I'm fine with planting it. I'm fine with having it around. I agree with Ken on biodiversity, etc. But even for... The either animal feed or backup emergency feed, I just think there's better things to grow. Now, it is much more likely in some climates that this stuff will become endemic and self-replicating than some other uh, grains and seeds, so that might be worth doing. The last thing is, I don't know if this is a good grain to feed to poultry or not, and I didn't do the research. I would say before if you're going to make if you're going to go at this. Before you make that decision, research it because certain grains and seeds that are common human food are not necessarily good for poultry. An example is amaranth. Amaranth literally has what has been termed in poultry anti-growth factors, meaning it literally retards and slows the growth of poultry. Uh, Amaranth in quantity should never be given to chickens, especially raw. Uh, there's some issues with, uh, serapins, I think is what they're called as well. Uh, rinsed and cooked, it would be much less bad for poultry, but it's still not on the positive side as a primary feed source. So I don't know if that's true about Phonio as well, but it would definitely be worth checking into if you decide you want to go down that path. Next up, let's hear about DC generators and sand batteries. What the hell is a sand battery? It sounds like something that would make Sam Kennison scream, if you remember that old bit. Anyway, Sean Mills will explain it.
5: Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com. And today I've got an expert counsel question from Bradley. Uh, Bradley says, or the message is, DC generators and sand batteries. Question, can a DC generator be used to provide battery charging and supply voltage to a sand battery to heat a home or workspace. Uh, so the first thing I'll do here is describe what a sand battery is. Uh, it's a thermal mess. And so the answer to your question is yes. Now for some more details. Um, so essentially where this is coming from is as people look for green solutions Uh, For the long, (coughs) excuse me, for the long term, uh, and we know the inherent issues with uh, relying on lithium as the solution and the only solution, um, that being namely the availability and uh, the issues that mining uh, lithium uh, can cause to the environment, uh, which are prob- which may be worse than just burning the coal in the dang plant that's already existing, but I'll get off of that and get back to the question. <laughs> um, so can a DC generator be used to provide battery charging and supply voltage to a sand battery to heat a home or workplace? Absolutely. A sand battery is a thermal mass. Uh, sand, Silica-based sand can take uh, very high temperatures and store them pretty well. It's a pretty good um, insulation material in and of itself. And so uh you could absolutely uh essentially the way this typically works is you have a silo and with a heater on top of it that's powered by some green energy and sand runs through a conveyor belt and drops through the heater where it is heated anywhere from 500 to 1200 degrees Celsius depending on the type of application the um The silo itself is insulated, so once the sand is stored in the silo, um, (coughs) it retains a significant amount of that heat for a significant amount of time. Uh, Theoretically, months later, heat could be extracted from that sand and used in the place of uh, resistive electric heat or burning wood or coal or natural gas uh, for heating things. So it's definitely a viable option. I think that right now, at least, it's a solution looking for a problem. Um, there are some other ways that you could do the exact same thing much more efficient efficiently uh, versus just heating up a bunch of sand and letting it sit in a silo for a few months. Um, in small countries like Finland, where the first commercial one was put in place, uh, it might have a commercial use uh, because of the specific demographic and geographic challenges in the country of Finland, Sweden, Denmark, things like that. Uh, In the United States I don't think it's um, a great solution and honestly if you want to uh, store energy in a thermal battery I think that a rocket mass heater is about the most efficient And cost-effective solution that there is but if you had a DC generator and you happen to have built a sand battery uh, you could absolutely shut some of the excess um, DC heat to uh, heat the sand Um, if I had a bunch of excess DC um, energy I think I would heat water and I could potentially run that water through walls and or floors uh, to provide space heating uh, or radiators to, vi- to provide space heating um, rather than uh, utilizing a sand battery uh, but to each their own. it's absolutely a doable thing and it'll be interesting to see what happens with um, sand batteries. I don't think that the United States has a great use case for them, but uh, some small smaller uh, Northern, North Sea, uh, countries that get a lot colder but have some significant wind um, availability or even uh, tidal power that they could draw from um, and use a bunch of the of electricity for heating, uh, maybe in those scenarios uh, it, it's a good idea. So guys, keep getting the questions in, and I'll keep getting them answered. I'm just glad to
0: know about it. I don't know that I'll ever use it, and I think Sean might be right. I don't know that we'll, we'll ever experience widespread use in the U.S., but it makes sense. Um, I I agree kind of like heating something like that, rocket mass heating, would probably be a lot more efficient than trying to do with electricity that comes off of a DC generator. But good to know that that's a thing. Next up, old Doc Bones talks about getting rid of a large amount, and I do mean a large
6: amount of prescription medication that needs to go. Hi, Joel and here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from a Christian who asks, Hello, Doc. What's the best way to dispose of a large amount of prescription medication that is no longer needed? My father recently passed away, and over time, he collected a large amount of prescription medications, statins, BP meds, etc. It's probably equal to a five-gallon bucketful. Wow. I didn't want to just throw it in the trash and end up in a landfill and leach into the groundwater. Any advice on the best way to get rid of this stuff safely would be much appreciated. Thank you. Christian, I'm sorry your dad passed, and condolences to you and your family. Any time an older member of the family passes, well, there's going to be a medicine cabinet with meds that they took. I write about storing medicines for survival settings, but in many cases, a drug that's safe for one person isn't for the other, so the authorities encourage you to dispose of them safely. Safely. That's the word. You're right that many drugs end up in landfills and can leach into groundwater. If your medicine cabinet is full of expired drugs or medications you no longer use, and you're concerned about the safety of having them around due to kids or just don't want them in the house, you're in luck. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency sponsors National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day in communities nationwide. This year, it's April 22nd, where drugs can be turned in to DEA-authorized police departments throughout the country. If you're a little nervous doing that, many communities also have their own drug take-back programs that function all year round. You can also check, by the way, with your pharmacist. Some pharmacies offer on-site medication drop-off boxes, mail-back programs and other ways to help you safely dispose of your unused drugs. Just go to Google Maps and write in drug disposal near me. In our area, the two biggest pharmacy chains will dispose of unwanted medications for you, probably the same in your your area as well. If you live in a remote area and there's no drug disposal option nearby, there's still two ways of disposing of medications at home. Some can actually be safely flushed down the toilet. Because some medicines could be especially harmful to others, they have specific directions to immediately flush them down the sink or toilet when they're no longer needed. The fentanyl patch is an example of a product that contains a powerful opioid medicine that can be dangerous to people it's not prescribed for. This adhesive patch delivers a strong pain medicine through the skin, and even after a patch is used, a lot of the medicine remains. That's why the drug comes with instructions to flush used or leftover patches. Interestingly enough, experts at the DEA and FDA say the main way that drug residues enter water systems is by people taking the medicines and then naturally passing them through their bodies. Many drugs are not completely absorbed or metabolized by the body and enter the environment after passing through wastewater treatment plants. Now, how do you know which can be safely flushed? Check the label or the product information leaflet with your medicine, or you can consult the Food and Drug Administration's list of medications recommended for disposal by flushing when a take-back option is not readily available. Don't flush your medicine unless it is on the flush list. There has been no sign of environmental effects caused by flushing recommended drugs. In fact, the FDA published a paper to assess this concern, finding negligible risk of environmental effects caused by flushing the recommended drugs. Disposing medicines in household trash is another option. If a take-back program is not available, almost all medicines, except those on the FDA blush list, can be thrown into your household trash. These include prescription and over-the-counter drugs and pills, liquids, drops, patches, and creams. There's a special way to do it, though. Follow these steps. Remove the drugs from their original containers and mix them with something undesirable, such as use coffee grounds, dirt, or cat litter. This makes the medicine less appealing to children and pets and unrecognizable to someone who might intentionally go through the trash looking for drugs. Put the mixture in something you can close, a resealable zipper storage bag, for example, an empty can or other container. This prevents the drug from leaking or spilling out. Then throw the container in the garbage. Scratch out all your personal information, by the way, on the empty medicine packaging to protect your identity and privacy, and then throw the packaging away. One environmental concern involves inhalers used by people who have asthma or other breathing problems like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. These products could be dangerous if punctured or thrown in a fire or incinerator. To properly dispose of these products and follow local regulations and laws, contact your local trash and recycling facility. Read handling instructions, by the way, on the labeling of inhalers and aerosol products. Hope this helps. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, support our mission to medically prepare families for times of trouble by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. This is just something to think about it's not
0: advice, because I can't give you advice in something like this. I can just say that maybe it's something to think about. It's for informational purposes. There could be times when you could need medication and not have access to it. We call those emergencies. We call those grid-down scenarios. We call those the things that we prepare for. And I, I would say that something like a fentanyl patch, I would dispose of it. However, things that are like... Medications that can be really useful that are prescription only. Pain medications, antibiotics, etc. It's important to know the whole expiration date thing is bullshit. And the only thing that happens to medications as they age out is their efficacy declines. Doc has talked about that before. I personally think that if you think a medication may be useful to you in an emergency, you may want to store it. But that's just my thoughts. I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do. Um, Just a thought. Just a thought. And you might want, if you're ever offered a prescription and you don't really think you need it, if it's something that could be useful, you might want to say, okay. yeah. Just a thought. Moving on, let's hear from Jeff Lawton, uh, these folks in a place in Africa. I don't remember if it was Tanzania or where. They drilled a well. Get down to the bottom of the well, pump the water out. There's water. It's salty.
7: What do you do once that happens, Jeff? Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Jordan. Um, i got an inquiry about someone who's uh, drilled a well in uh, Tanzania and uh, they're 18 kilometers from coast and they've hit salt water and um don't say how salty but it's pretty salty the sand you can't drink it um and they want to know if there's salt water plants that you can grow if they dig ponds to put them in well the only thing you can do there is maybe grow kind of mangroves and different styles of shallow marine plants you'd have to bring them from the coast um they're a product in themselves and thrive on the salt water. They don't necessarily desalinate, they're from that ecosystem. Um, so you sort of bring in a salt water ecosystem inland, and um, it's not a great advantage. Um, the only thing that I know of which could work is tamarisk. Um, there's a, a, tamarisk is one of the most salt tolerant trees in the world. And uh, when I worked in Iran, There was a doctor there studying how to desalinate a valley just before it hit a salt pan. It was an extremely salty landscape. And he specialised in planting tamarisk trees. And nobody does that. Everybody hates tamarisk because they know if you've got tamarisk, you're in really salty soil and nothing else will grow. But he just went with the flow, which is like like a permaculture way of going about things. Go with the weeds, go with the systems that are growing and see how, how much organic matter you can... Um, produce and change the landscape so he actually went out and searched good quality tamarisk which is something else something nobody ever does he went and found tamarisk that were good strong trees and large trees and he, he grew his seed stock from the good quality tamarisk he could find in the landscape and he planted them very densely all the way down the valley um in the salt water and only water he could irrigate with was salty water and um and uh, the tamarisk grew and, and they actually taste salty if you lick the leaves of a tamarisk it actually tastes like salt it, it's bonding the salt up in its organic matter and he, he then used all the foliage and twigs as mulch and he actually got an income for the local people cutting the branches and, and logs back um, and, 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 and drying them out and selling them as firewood so he actually took off the hard woody material as a product straight away but he returned all the branches and, and, and foliage to the ground and just heavily mulched and heavily mulched. And when he cut back the trees, they regrow. These are really some of the hardiest trees in the world, tamarisk. They kind of look like a sort of cypress, They're almost like a pine needle. Anyway, um, over a period of time, the soil improved and uh, started to desalinate from the amount of organic matter that was locking up the salt. And um, then he started to plant species that are reasonably salt tolerant but not as tolerant as tamarisk and they grew and he did the same thing he just kept mulching with the tamarisk and the slightly less uh slightly less salt resistant trees and he gradually moved to a system where he actually put in a food forest He started to plant date palms and and, and mangoes and fruit trees once he'd built his organic matter. So his starting point was pioneering the salted landscape with tamarisk. And I I just think he should have got a Nobel Prize for that. I mean, it was just the most out-of-the-box way of thinking that nobody else I've ever seen, Um, I've ever heard of anybody, being that brave to move towards a system that, you just there are one or two trees that will grow in that extreme salt, and just use their ability to change the conditions at the soil level. So that's what I'd be having to go at.
0: I just thought I'd add there are a few vegetables, conventional vegetables, that actually have high salt tolerance. Now we're not talking about ocean water salt, so I don't know what the salt amount here is. But if you have somewhat salty, moderate salty water from your natural irrigation source, here's here's some of the things that you can grow that actually have really decent salt tolerance. Beets, bell peppers, broccoli, cabbage, kale, loquats, spinach, and tomato. As far as moderate salt tolerance, believe it or not, carrots, cauliflower, lettuce, peas, potatoes, squash, and sweet corn. All of those have some level of salt tolerance, so maybe not as salty as this person's dealing with, but it's good to know if you end up in a situation where you have somewhat level of salts that are an issue with whatever water you're forced to use for irrigation. I would really think hard, though, if I was in a place where a well would only give me salty water, about using really aggressive water-harvesting earthworks, Rain catchment and things like that, even in limited rainfall, you can do a lot with it. Moving on, let's go ahead and hear about how to get kids to think and to ask things in a timely manner. Amy Dingman will talk about that.
8: Hey, everybody. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast, and I got a question sent in to me from Stephen. He asked, How would you encourage a kid to ask more often and think things through? The background to this is my eight-year-old is very set in her ways and does basically whatever she puts her mind to. There is no asking, and that is the issue. Some ideas are good, like being kind, but most of the time it's a last-minute demand or statement that this is going to happen, and it's driving us crazy. Example, daughter says, I want meatloaf for dinner parents say, it's 5:30 and we have chicken. You need to ask about dinner after breakfast because we make everything every day. You can't demand you want something last minute and expect it to appear. You've made meatloaf before and you know how much time it takes. Daughters reply, I don't want chicken. Parents reply, they give an eye roll and sit down for dinner. How do we get her to think through something and ask in advance? Thanks for everything you do, Stefan. Thank you for the question, Stefan. And I've got to be honest, when I first got this and I skimmed the question, I was thinking, um, she's eight. She's not in charge. What is the issue here? After reading this again a few times and thinking on it, I don't think that's exactly what you're getting at, Stefan. I think you're more frustrated that she thinks things work a certain way, which they clearly don't, and then you have to deal with the attitude that comes with it, and you're mostly shocked and frustrated that she doesn't get it, because logically things just work a certain way in life, and why doesn't she see that? So you say she's made meatloaf before, so she understands it takes more than five minutes to make. You tell her you've already made chicken, so it doesn't make sense you'd make something else. So how do you get her to think through something? It could be something that she needs to see modeled, Adults thinking through things, adults going through the steps of making a decision or coming to the decision, for instance, of this is what we're going to have for supper tonight. Because with some kids, sometimes they just see adults know everything and everything is already decided as in this is the decision. They don't see the steps and the thought process of going through that. So maybe she's just someone who needs to see those steps modeled, you know. Mom or dad has to, you know, figure out this thing. We need to make this decision for tonight or tomorrow or this weekend. And here are the steps to us figuring that out, the pros and cons, and what do we need to do to make that come to fruition? So that's one option. Another option is this probably comes out in other things in your family, but because you gave the example of, you know, supper, You could have the option of saying, okay, for the next week, how about you plan the meals? Let's sit down and let's plan the meals together so you can see that it is a process and you can't just decide a half hour before we're going to eat that we're going to completely change the menu because here's what that means. You say that she knows that meatloaf takes longer, you know, to make and you can't just change what you're having, but does she really know? So you could say, help me plan the meals for the week. You could say, how about you plan... Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or what do you think we should have for supper? Or, you know, you said you need to tell me in the morning. Sit down and make that a thing that you do as a family. We're going to figure out what we're having for supper. This is the process of making that happen. Here's what we need to decide. Another option is... Is there a sibling or a cousin that you could maybe compare this to and say to your daughter, what if your sibling or what if your cousin decided they didn't want what mom or dad had made for a supper? How do you think that would make mom and dad feel? Do you think that that would be something that would even work? Like, how would that work? And if she can see it in other people, you know, maybe it will be like, oh, a mirror up to herself. Then again, maybe maybe it's just an attitude thing. Sometimes kids act like jerks, and I hope you're not offended by me saying that, but sometimes kids can act like jerks because kids are human, and sometimes humans act like jerks. That is my personal opinion, but kids can have attitudes because kids are people, and people have attitudes. It's something that happens. Another thing you can say to your daughter is, look, here are the things you're in charge of. Here are the things you can decide If you want to have, you know, lots of input and give your kids a lot of control in the household, here are the things you're in charge of. Here are the things you can decide. Here are the things you don't get to decide because you're eight. And if you want to take that a step further, you can say, here are all the things that I don't get to decide as dad or mom because for whatever reason, you know, everybody has things they don't get to decide. Here are the things you don't get to decide because you're eight. If it's just an attitude thing, if it's a personality thing, it may just be something you get to deal with. You have a crabby kid, and that's just one of the joys of being a parent. Sometimes you get to deal with crabby kids who are going through stuff, and I don't know how to make that better for you because that's just one of the joys we get to go through as parents. You did say in your original email that being kind is one of her things. It's something she decides to do, and it's one of her things. So I'm wondering if that's something she's really big on, maybe pointing out... You know what? Is it, is it really super kind to demand a different supper when your parents have already made something else? How, how do you think that mom or dad feels about that when you do that? Is that really a kind thing to do? But like I said, this could just be part of her personality. You say that she's really set in her ways and she makes up her mind to do things. And this is one of those things it can serve her really well in life in some ways, but in other ways, it's going to be really, really frustrating right? Same with having a kid who won't take no for an answer. Same with having a kid who takes a lot of risks. Those things will serve them well in certain areas of their life, but if you've got a kid like that, you're often ripping your hair out as you are raising them because you're like, oh my gosh, I just have to keep reminding myself this could be a good thing in the future, but right now it's making me crazy. This may just be something that's going to take time for her to figure out, and you get the joy of walking through that with her. What it reminds me of right off the top of my head is my kids are adults now, but one of my kids really wanted people that he worked with to be hard workers and to be responsible and to be punctual because he is a hard worker and he is responsible and he is punctual. And he had to realize there are a lot of 16 to 60 year olds who actually aren't Hard workers and they're not responsible and they're not punctual. And he struggled with that really, really hard to the point that it was affecting his mood. And then that affected the mood of the house. And it didn't matter how we went about telling him, look, this is just how some people are. Here are some ways you can deal with it. But when you get down to it, this is just how some people are. He just had to figure it out. Some things just take some experience in life. And uh, that might be the situation here. I'm not sure. This may be one of those things where we need a lot more information to answer the question. So I hope that helps you a little bit. I hope it gives you something to think on. If you'd like to discuss it further, you can email me at amy at Otherwise, that's what I've got for you today. Send in more questions, you guys. I love to hear what you have to say. Uh, check out my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. Check out my podcast. Check out my books. All the good things. Let's hear what Jack has to say about this.
0: Great stuff, as always, from Amy. Next up, Nick Ferguson on transforming swampland into a productive food forest.
9: Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with an answer on turning a swamp into useful land. And this one comes from Justin. He says, hey, Jack, question for Nick Ferguson. How do I turn a swamp into a food forest? Hi, Nick. Justin here from Western Massachusetts and I'm on a long half-acre property, 50 foot by 500 foot. Ouch. The back half of the property is wooded and overgrown, and about one-quarter to one-half of the woods is scattered swamp and soggy ground. Depending on the time of the year, like now coming out of winter, it's pretty swampy. My thought is to clear the overgrowth, thin out some trees, leaving most of the bigger trees, and dig swales through the natural swampy areas and draw water to not-so-swampy areas and hopefully concentrate water into the swales, thus reducing the overall amount of swamp and soggy ground and ideally ending up with usable land to plant in a food forest along the swales. Do you think this is possible to do in a swampy, soggy area? And do you have any suggestions to help make this successful? Thanks, Nick. Um. Okay, so if you know what you're doing, then probably... Um, most likely that plan will work. Um, but 50 foot wide is a hell of a narrow strip of ground to be working with, to be completely honest. Um, so my first question would be on the ROI for improvement of such a major problem, because it sounds like it's a pretty big issue Again, you know, without actually seeing it, without actually even seeing some pictures or video, that's going to be really hard to know if it's even worth doing. So uh, I'm just going to back up here and give a massive caveat. This is a really complicated issue. I know it sounds real simple, but there's so much at play here that I'm almost positive any advice I can give would be bad advice. There's just too many variables I need to get information on to really give you solid feedback on this kind of a situation. So I'll tell you some generalizations and describe what I've done in the past for borderline marshy areas and wet, low-lying ground, and I'll try to answer it best as I can. So putting aside how narrow that strip of land is, because 50 foot is really stinking narrow... Also, putting aside how much I'm not a fan of food forests, because that's a whole different discussion, uh, uh, let's just talk about fixing that specific type of problem. Like you said, we need to concentrate the water, and we need to concentrate dry land both. Um but something very important to understand is the soil hydrology. Even if we get some ground dried out, your water table is likely to be high enough to create very anoxic soil strata and some very shallowly rooted trees. So if you take out a bunch of the trees, then the trees remaining won't have the the canopy support to manage storms, high winds. And they're likely to layover. Uh, on top of that, digging ground and consolidating the soil and water into a more concentrated areas will significantly impact the mature trees in the area. They have roots spread out really far. Um, I mean one tree in that 50 foot wide strip that's mature, you're going to be cutting feeder roots whenever you cut in the ground. Like you'll cut all of the feeder roots on one side of it basically. Um, and that's going to make a massive impact on it. So, um, uh, where was I? Uh, the, the reason, um, significantly impact mature trees in the area. Um, the reason is we need to take the excavated soil and spread it over the new dry land. Basically you end up with a seasonal pond area and a dry land area that's like, possibly even a foot higher, but moving all that soil buries all the existing trees' feeder roots a foot under new excavated soil and also buries all the root crowns and will end up killing them. Um, so what I've done in the past when it's a wet area, the best solution is honestly to harvest the trees, strip all the top soil, save it to the side to be spread back out after you're done, And then you excavate a dug pond, not an impounded pond, and you take all that excavated subsoil, build up a new drier land, a little higher elevation, and then you spread the topsoil back over that subsoil, and you end up with basically a seasonal, possibly, or year-round pond, and some dry land. Now that's, that's a big deal. That's a lot of dirt work. That's, you know, that's a project. That's likely your best solution for the narrow landform you're dealing with because, honestly, just about any kind of earthworks that you're going to do back there is going to kill big trees just because you just don't have enough room to get around their root zones. Um, so what I described with excavating a pond, essentially, and bringing the soil up, we've done this with pastures that are basically unusual, unusual unusable due to pugging during the wet season and that's like where they're stepping in it and it's deep mud and you know you'll have this you know cow foot sized hole that's six inches deep Mm -hmm. and it fills with water and you're basically just destroying the root zone of your grass and that happens during the wet season and it never fully recovers enough by the dry season for the pasture to remain useful basically it just wrecks So all we did was cut ditches to consolidate the water, lined the ditches with trees, and that helped to transport some water out of those ditches during the summer. And it also provided willow fodder for the livestock. And you end up with drier pasture in the spaces between the ditches and usable pasture year round. So if your goal is just to marginally improve the problem area so that you can walk through there, you can dig a small swale maybe and feather the excavated soil out over the dry land like i'm um, a couple inches deep that's not going to do much um but you might be able to avoid um cutting all the feeder roots by by doing that little um you just have to be careful you don't end up creating a worse flood issue by impounding the water with raised berms like in a normal swale and berm earthworks And honestly, that's just iffy in my book. And you really need to know better what you're doing to make sure you don't compound the problem. And if you're calling in to ask the question, you probably don't have the expertise to know all of those little details that could um, compound the problem and make it worse. And that's the make that's like the main thing that makes me unsure about giving a solid answer answer is the fact that it's easy to make that problem worse instead of better. Um, honestly, I think probably one of Ben Falk's students in the area could do a consult and help you out better with eyes and boots on the ground because that's, that's like the big deal here is eyes and boots on the ground. So I don't know. I feel like this answer is as clear as mud. I I guess to recap, you probably need professional boots-on-the-ground advice on how to fix your issue. Uh, I might be able to help you via distance consulting. I might not. Uh, Most likely, the surest way to solve your issue is to remove the trees in the wet area. Make a pond and drier land region. That could change drastically depending on how large the trees are. If they're smaller than 12-inch DBH... It's a no-brainer. Take them out, reshape the area if you have the funds to do it. Uh, if they're 36-inch DBH trees, by golly, I'd just enjoy the area, clear out the brush, build some raised footpaths, and enjoy my marshy area. I hope this helps out. Um, a quick note to all the listeners. I'll be teaching a class on fodder in July at Mark Baker's place in Marion, Michigan. I'll be on a consulting tour on my way up there and back down south through Georgia. Like, I'll be going through maybe Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, over to Georgia, and then back along I-20 home to Louisiana. So if you're interested in having me out to your place, please let me know so I can get your name and address plugged into my logistics. There's a lot of people on this current circuit already, Um, so I need to see who all I can fit in on this tour. I might be able to fit you in. I might not. I will say though, if you're up that far North, Michigan, um, Minnesota, um, all those states right up around there, this is the first time I will have been that far North in like 10 plus years. Uh, so you better get me an email if you wanted to have me out within the last decade, because honestly, I'm not likely to be up that far north again in a long while. Um, I actually probably have a consult in Canada. Um, So yeah, to get on the waiting list for a consult, send me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with consulting in the subject line, and that'll get you in the queue and on the waiting list. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty. Do good things.
0: So there would be a lot that would go into this for me to give advice as well that would be meaningful because, well, how much total land? Why this space? Is there a reason that you want to put a food forest there? You just want a food forest and that's the area you have, etc. Because you've got a wetland, basically, and the edges of wetlands are excellent places to grow things. So this may be something more to work with the edge of what's already there rather than try to replace what's already there. And then within this swampland this wetland that's full of trees this strip of trees maybe it's possible to introduce things that do well in that climate what does well in a swamp as understory Fent, ferns depending on your climate right if you're in a climate where ferns uh, do well you, you might go in there and actually plant ferns and now you've got fiddleheads in the spring leeks do well especially in a deciduous area if this is not conifers because they like to come up so wild leeks would be something that could grow in this area. So maybe, if, and, and I'm not going to keep going, but you can start looking for well, what plants that grow naturally in wooded woodland swamps are edible or useful that could be introduced here. Maybe it's a matter of doing some clearing and some paths or something uh, to, to get access. I don't know, but uh, I'm with Nick with a narrow strip of only 50 feet. It's not much of a food forest to begin with. I mean, 50 feet is what, like 15 yards? 15 steps? 20 steps at best would be 60 foot, right? So maybe it's not worth the cost of doing major excavation work. Maybe there's some way to utilize it and mostly leave it as it is. Because swamplands are incredibly biodiverse systems. Right. The other option would be, and, and Nick mentioned putting in a pond and then trying to you know, terraform around it, uh, if it is a place that would make a good pond site, there are very few things that will cause me to cut down high-quality, mature trees. I will do it to put a pond in because the biodiversity and the value of a pond in this place may be a better site to clear out and put a lake in than it is to try to put a food forest in directly. And then the productivity and the biodiversity may be really enhanced, and maybe it can be done without total removal of the entire system as well. Just some thoughts on that. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into my topic today, which is building off a quote by Dr. Ron Paul, who I just have to say we are so fortunate to have as part of the team here on a weekly basis for expert counsel shows from his Liberty Report Highlights. Um, and big shout-out to Chris Rossini, who puts them together for us every week over there on the Ron Paul team, because I really appreciate that, Chris. Thank you, if you happen to be listening today. But I found this quote by Dr. Paul today. I just, sometimes I just go on Brainy quotes and just start clicking on stuff until I find something that hits me and go, yeah, I'll talk about that. I saw this one. I thought, boy, we really should talk about this, because I've actually done a show, and I've even run it as a rewind, called blind, about blind patriotism and it being a greater danger than tyranny itself in, in, in our country. And what Dr. Paul said is, real patriotism is the willingness to challenge the government when it's wrong. I I couldn't agree more. Um, there's also a very famous quote that's kind of the antithesis of this. Samuel Johnson, who's around from 1709 to 1784, once said, Patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Yeah. And I, I think that, that's exa- that they're not really... In opposition of each other. Real patriotism is believing in the ideals of the place that you call home and being willing to stand up for those ideals even when the government says you're wrong. But running to patriotism is a cloak, is a shield, is what Samuel Johnson was talking about. And that's so much of what is done today by our government. Well, if you don't agree with us bombing this place, clearly you're not patriotic. Wait a minute, I don't think that's how that works. I think that if we are doing our job as citizens, and I realize I speak and you're like, Jack's an anarchist. Yes, I am. I'm also a pragmatist. And I also realize that not everybody that I'm talking to on this show is an anarchist. And I also realize that not only is it not everybody, but most of the people that listen to the show are not anarchists. We are the minority of minorities. I would say that the bent of this show tends toward libertarianism and there's also a shit ton of people that listen to this show every day that would call themselves small government conservatives or republicans. And I may disagree with their political ideology but I don't disagree with their right to have it. And if you're going to be patriotic there's lots of different ways that you can come at that if it's sincere. And what I mean is as an anarchist I am patriotic from a standpoint of I believe in freedom and liberty which is what this nation was founded upon. And this nation is a place irrespective of the government. There is a culture and a people and a history to the place that I live. And I have some loyalty to that. But I also above all have loyalty to truth, and I have loyalty to the concept of non-aggression and non-intervention. I don't believe the purpose of the United States was ever supposed to be intervention in foreign lands. I don't think that the United States, upon its founding, was ever destined or designed to become the police force of the world. And I don't think there's a need for us to do it. But if we're going to do it, we should only do it when we can at least pretend that we're right. Interfering in a conflict between two countries in another part of the world when we have no actual alliance with either, that's not patriotic and it is interventionist. And if you, if you look at the actual arguments instead of the marketing arguments, poodle will take over the world. Yeah, you tried that already. It was called domino theory. It's how you got us involved in Vietnam, and it was a disaster then just like it is now. So throw that away. When you actually dig in and look at the reasoning, it's because it's what we want. Because it's good for United States financial interests. That's why. And that's not a reason, in my opinion, to send missiles and bombs and weapons and money anywhere. To anyone. Because it's in our best interest to do so as a soul. No, there's a lot of things that would be in my best interest. I could make a pretty good career as a criminal. I could do what I do now and throw my ethics away and make a shitload more money. But I think patriotism goes along with ethics when it's real. Here's an example of what I mean by I can make a lot more money. I recently heard from somebody, we met you at an event, blah, blah, blah. Look how much money these people you know made referring people to our shit. Now, I don't know these people at all. Never heard of them before. They say they met me, that's fine, I meet a lot of people. They have made no effort to win me over on a relationship level where I know I can trust them. The first thing they want to do is throw dollar signs at me and say, hey, tell your people to buy our shit. Um, No. No. And I told these people as much and they came back with, you know, didn't really mean to come off that way and some other bullshit excuse. I said, but you did and you can't take it back now. Now, what they were selling, if I put it on the air, as many people as listen to the show, I would probably make a lot of money. One of the people they mentioned, I know I have a larger audience than they do, and one of the people they mentioned and the number they gave me, if they weren't lying, was $87,000 last year this person made. So I could go make that money, but what am I doing? I'm damaging this relationship with this audience. I'm taking more now, but I'm damaging the trust long term. And I'm also transferring the relationship that I have with you to to so that relationship becomes with them. Whenever you do affiliate sales, you're you're building somebody else's list. And that's okay. And you might be like, how does this join back to patrons? Well it's again it's about ethics. Doing what is most beneficial to me now may not be the right thing to do. Think of it the way we think about farming. There's no doubt if I go to a new piece of land that's never been farmed before and till it every year and, and, and drop fertilizer on it and herbicide and pesticide, I will get really great yields. And if I want really great yields and I want money now, it is in my best interest to till the ground every year and add fertilizer and pesticide and herbicide and use patented seeds. That That is the best short-term decision. But it's certainly not the best long-term decision. It's certainly not an ethical one. Patriotism has to be wedded to ethics. Or it's not patriotism. It's obedience to the state. And obedience to the state is not patriotism. It's actually the opposite of patriotism. The most patriotic of men will stand in the face of their own government, their own country, and tell them to go, screw, when the ethics don't align. And I'm not talking about just individual ethics. There's plenty of things that people do that I don't think they should do, but I don't have a problem with them doing them. Maybe using a certain substance, eating a certain kind of food, following a certain religion, whatever. But when we start applying force, either direct or by proxy, on other peaceful people, we are not living up to what the United States of America is supposed to be. And we're not living up to what we are called to be as people. We're not. And so this idea that if you were a patriot, you'd be on board with, let's put Putin down, man. Let's fight this. This is retarded. The first thing you should ask is, since we're supposedly concerned about Ukraine, does us prolonging this war and sending hundreds of millions of dollars to Ukraine, hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine, Does this actually help the average Ukrainian citizen? And the answer is no. So by helping, we're hurting. And we're prolonging the war. And as Sun Tzu said, no nation has ever benefited from a prolonged war. Either side. So do you know how you benefit from a prolonged war? Is there any way to break that rule? Yeah, you're not in the war. You're a proxy to the war. See, the proxy can benefit from a prolonged war because it weakens both sides. It damages both sides. A- and the best way to be stronger than your enemy is simply to weaken your enemy. So we're doing this for self-interest, but not, not the self-interest of the average American. The average American's life is no better for us intervening in, in Ukraine. If what's likely to happen happens in Ukraine, which is Russia takes Donbass, there's a bunch of blah, 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 bullshit, shit talk, smack talk after the fight, but that's what happens, the average American's life won't change. At all. Infinity. Unless our government decides at some point to start a frickin' world war. If Ukraine kicks Putin out, you yay, rah, 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 wave your little blue and yellow flag you have no idea even which side is up on it, by the way. Most of you, your life, you might as well say that your life got better because your favorite team won the Super Bowl or your favorite team won the NBA playoffs. It's just it it might make you feel good, but nothing actually changes in your life. And if Russia took over the whole of Ukraine, which I'm certainly not advocating for, so don't start shit again. you. your life wouldn't change. What is the benefit to the average American? If we can't define exactly how the life of the average Ukrainian is improved, and the life of the average American is improved, for spending all this money and causing all this bloodshed and misery, then it's not patriotic to support it. It's blind obedience to the state. If you will not stand against your own government... You are not a patriot to your country. And you have confused government with country. Joe Biden is not the United States. Okay? Joe Biden is no more the United States than I or you are. Collectively, we are the people of the United States. But individually, you're not the United States. And neither is anybody you elect. The Congress isn't. The Senate isn't. The Department of Defense isn't. That's government. Patriotism is allegiance not to a government, but to a place, to a set of ideals, to your fellow compatriots who live where you do. My my loyalty as a patriot is not to the government, it is not to the state, it is to you, and yours should be to me. And when I say that, I mean much bigger than me to you one-on-one. I mean, me to you, everybody, and from everybody back to me, and everybody to everybody else. That's what patriotism is all about. Think about the things that we say we care about in America, and tell me how the government helps those things. Freedom and liberty, kind of the same thing. Individual rights, we even have a whole thing called the Bill of Rights. A right to self-defense. Because that's what the First Amendment really is. the right to speak freely. Right? The, the right to speak freely. To be heard. To publish. These are rights we have. A right to be secure in our, our, our persons, our places, and our things. A right to the sovereignty of our home. You know, people actually today mock. Was it the Fourth Amendment against quartering troops? Is it the Fourth? I think that's right. No, that's not right. Um, Third Third Amendment. Third Amendment against quartering troops, right? This used to be really, really common in the world. That when in, this, this was common in Roman times, that you would quarter troops in somebody's home. Hey, we're occupying this place right now. We have some troops. They need a place to stay. You're going to give them a place to stay and feed them. Third Amendment of the United States Constitution, Preventing this, actually recognize the sovereignty of the individual dwelling. It's yours. And therefore, you cannot be asked to quarter troops or anything to serve the state with it. It's an incredibly important amendment. And people are like, well, we haven't needed it. Maybe because we had it. Maybe because we had it, maybe the founders were smart enough to write that one. So that a five-year-old could understand it without questioning the use of a comma, like in the second one. But that's what patriotism's about: the ideals, freedom, liberty, justice, sovereignty of the individual. These are things I have no problem having loyalty to. And when your government acts counter to the things that. Are worthy of patriotism. The patriot should be the first, not the last, to speak, in spite of the slings and arrows that will be thrown at them. Always. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'm going to wrap up now. Reminder you got rewinds coming for the next two weeks. And, uh, again, they're going to be a really good group of Rewinds. Also, real quick reminder, don't have an item of the day for you today, but you can always help support the Survival Podcast just by doing your online shopping starting where? Tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, Tspaz.com. With that, Jack Spirko, out for a couple weeks to enjoy a vacation. I'll catch you next month when I come back on Monday, May 8th. And it'll be all the way to May 8th before I'm back with another new show. Take care, guys. Catch you on the other side.
3: Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way.